And welcome to not just another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usri. Today begins a different phase for Book Talk, which has prided itself on only conducting in-person interviews for over 20 years. Today is the first in a line of episodes that will be conducted remotely via the internet. Since many authors may not be touring for quite some time, and that two people sharing a small studio and breathing the same air for an hour isn't compliant with social distancing, we will do our best to bring you our lively conversations with authors from around the nation via the web. Today's guest is a Book Talk veteran, Scott Phillips. Scott is a crime fiction novelist originally from Wichita, Kansas. His book, The Ice Harvest, was made into a movie starring Billy Bob Thornton and John Cusack. He's been on Book Talk before to discuss his novels, Rake, and Hop Alley. Today we'll be exploring his most recent novel, That Left Turn at Albuquerque, which is published by Soho Crime. And Scott is recording from his home in the metropolitan St. Louis area. Thanks for doing this. Oh, thank you. Um, you know, I got my book tour canceled after uh, two stops, so uh, any plugging I can do, I'm happy to do it. So where did you get to on your tour before you had to turn around? Uh, Los Angeles. I had nine people show up, all of whom were uh, friends of mine, and then uh, drove to Phoenix and found out that uh, my next stop was canceled, and I assumed the next one was also going to be canceled, So, which it was. So, went home. How are things in St. Louis right now? Real quiet. Really quiet. Although the governor just announced that everything can reopen. So. And that goes for the major cities as well? Yeah, and I I think we may be getting a little bit ahead of the uh, Georgia curve in terms of stupidity and recklessness, but what do I know? (laughs) Well, considering that St. Louis has been held up as the epitome of how to handle a pandemic going back to the Spanish flu during the the First World War, it's uh, strange that they're going to ignore the lessons that the city actually learned back then. Well, right, yeah, it's a different world. So is it officially pronounced that left turn at Albuquerque? No, it's just uh, left left turn. You can you can pronounce it that way if you want. Since it was such a big Bugs Bunny line, I didn't know if we were going to go with the, the Bugs Bunny pronunciation. Well, one of the characters in the book is a former um, employee of the animation department at Warner Brothers, which my uncle actually was. So it's a double Warner Brothers-Bugs Bunny connection there. I remember when we talked about Rake, there were a lot of real-world antecedents for the action and the the characters in Rake, is there another circumstance like in Left Turn that a lot of this has? No, not really. I just, I always wanted to write a book about art forgery, and this turned into it. So we uh, kick off the book with an attorney named Rigby, and we know it's a fairly contemporary setting because he can't find a phone booth. So he's tracked one down and uh, he's having a, a hell of a time negotiating the use of this particular payphone. Right, it's been claimed. So why is this damn blue-collar tweaker hassling him so much? Well, because he's waiting for a call. The tweaker is waiting for a call, and Rigby doesn't want to mess with it, so he gives him $100 to go away. And then the tweaker's call comes in almost immediately after he leaves. Yeah, yeah. And he says, yeah, I think he's. Uh, I think your pal's a narc. Probably gets the tweaker killed, I'm not sure. So that's one of many things we learn about Rigby's character just in this little short scene, because when he goes into the store that the payphone's in front of, his champagne buying experience is a contentious one. Yeah, he's a little prickly. You know, he's a guy who, he needs to have his, I don't know if I can say it on the radio, he needs to be shown respect. 
and he feels he is not being shown that respect. Leave it to him to complain that Vuv Clicquot is white trash. Yeah, white trash booze. Might as well be cold duck to him, it seems. Yeah. It's just so that he puts across this image to the clerk there. That, right. You know, he's not going to take the first thing the clerk offers. And the clerk is somebody he doesn't know and will never see again, but he feels determined to, to win the thing. And it seems like through the course of the book, so many of the characters are presenting themselves as something that they most likely truly aren't. There's a whole lot of facade going on in the story. There's a lot of face-saving, yeah. A lot of people in temporarily reduced circumstances. As John Steinbeck once said, there are no poor men in America, only temporarily embarrassed millionaires. <laughs> and this book is full of those. Rigby has been a successful attorney in his past, but his client list has been kind of whittled down, hasn't it? Whittled down to one. And it's a former TV producer who used to be a, a mocker back in the day, but now he's just a, an old man. I sort of think of him as being in the Jack Webb mode or maybe a, a less successful Quinn Martin, but nonetheless a guy with a lot of money and, you know, kind of coasting into his 90s. And he really doesn't think he has anything to apologize for for the way he's lived his life. No, he doesn't think he does, although he does. He's kind of a scumbag. Uh, <laughs> as a lot of guys in... Uh, the entertainment industry were of that generation, and uh, and this one also. The reason Rigby needs to use this payphone is that he's gotten up to some illegal business himself, being a lawyer crossing over to the other side. Well, he doesn't quite see it that way, but uh, yeah, he has stolen some of his client's money with, with the intention of returning said money, and then he bought some cocaine with it, which he hopes to unload, and that doesn't go quite as planned either. So he's uh, contacted a modern-day Noel Coward <laughs> on the phone in Topeka. Yeah, right. The Devil's Hammers motorcycle. What kind of dude is Crumb Dog like? Well, Crumb Dog is the sergeant-at-arms of the Devil's Hammers. And, you know, he doesn't like dealing with this guy, but he, he sees that there could be some profit out of it. So he humors him and says, yeah, I'll take a look at your material. And and it doesn't, it doesn't go well. Rigby makes the mistake of engaging a moron to do the uh, exchange because he doesn't want to do it himself because, you know, he's a lawyer and a productive member of society and he doesn't think he should be dealing with riffraff in person, so he sends this other guy to do it. And unfortunately, the other guy is not the sharpest tack in the box and he ends up losing the cocaine and the money. So that's another instance of trying to save face. You know, he can't be the guy doing this. Obviously, someone else has to do it. And that leads to more problems. Right, right, right. He's, he, that's beneath him. And so on top of this behavior, stealing from a client, trying to unload some coke, how has he gotten to this place where he needs to do these things in order to, to keep his life afloat? Well, his, uh, his law partner, who was really the brains of the outfit, has died and when this partner died, all the uh, clients left the firm, uh, except for the old television producer, who just likes Rigby, because Rigby will sit around and listen to him tell stories. Meanwhile, Rigby is having an affair with his partner's widow, who owns a substantial stake in the firm. Part of the reason for that is he's encouraging her to keep pumping money into the business. And while we have a lot of point-of-view characters that we make through the course of the story, Rigby's kind of our center on all this. Mm -hmm. He's kind of the, the place where all the action starts to flow from. And having an 
anti-hero character like him, do you think it's necessary to make us like him in any way, or are we just supposed to be kind of fascinated by him? Well, he's charming, I think, and he's kind of funny, and, you know, if you look at the people in the in the book, they kind of like him. I used to know a guy who I think was a genuine sociopath, and people would sit around and talk about this guy and what a crook he was. He was kind of a legendary figure among his friends and acquaintances, but, you know, if he walked in the door... You were always kind of happy to see him. And that's the way I kind of picture Rigby. He's a guy that pretty much everybody has his number, but, you know, they're still kind of glad to see him. I think there's a a bit later in the book, is it Rigby, when he's talking to someone and it's darker, they can't see his face, and he's not nearly as charming without seeing his face. Yeah. A lot of it is a a visual thing. Yeah, he's got a a smile that people like. He's big on... uh physical fitness he's uh pumps a lot of weights is he juicing at all does this add into he's a, his he's range? a former bodybuilder yeah no he's not a he doesn't well toward the end of the book i won't give it away but he he's not really a steroid guy but he is i kind of wanted him to be physically threatening i wanted there to be a uh, kind of a physical nature to when he gets angry people get scared and he gets angry several times in the course of the book and it doesn't always end well. So next up, we meet his wife, Paula, and she is right. a real estate agent. Because yes. of their combined bad circumstances, they might lose their house, and that's a very bad look for an agent. Right. That's something a realtor doesn't want to have happen, even more than the rest of us don't want it to happen. Very bad. It's like uh, Sam Spade saying, when a man's partner gets killed, it's bad business to let it go. That's... I know what losing your house is for a real estate agent. Yeah, so things have kind of gone downhill for her. They need money real bad, especially because Rigby now has to replace the money that he stole from his client. So that's an extra two hundred grand in the hole there, on top of everything else. Right, on top of it all. So in this first scene with Paula, she's prepping for a meeting with a, a potential client to buy a house, and in walks a social acquaintance, yes. who we learn later is more than a social acquaintance. It's a, a woman named Beth. Right, it's the partner's widow. And her husband's affair partner. Right, Paula knows all about it. She's not fooled, but, you know, she doesn't care all that much. You know, after years of being married to this guy Rigby, she uh, has become pretty cynical herself. But in the way that she approaches Beth, she's just trying to brush her off by passive-aggressive nature, and she's also trying to duck out on taking calls from her boss. Then she knows about Rigby cheating on her, but doesn't do anything about it. It seems like avoidance is like one of her key ways to get through life. Yeah, the path of least resistance. Why do you think her business has gone down so much? Is it just because the economy in general or just because all this is starting to weigh on her? Oh, it's a combination of bad luck. And yeah, things are... I I think part of it is she's just having a hard time psychologically, and that has kind of taken its toll on uh, her mojo as a saleswoman. I mean, I think she is a smart character and a, you know, good at what she does, but just the whole thing of being married to this toxic sociopath is grinding down on her a little bit. But it seems she believes that if it's good for the gander, it's also good for the goose. Right. She's having a little fun of her own. And it's with a, a golf pro named Keith. And beyond the biblical objections to this, it's a big no-no for him. Right, because she's a customer, she's a client, she's uh, one of his golfing students, and that's frowned upon. 
that's more than frowned upon. It can get them fired. So this seems to be a, a pretty big line to cross exactly, for a pro. Exactly. Yeah. And plus, he has his own girlfriend that he's not treating well. Right. Right. And he's just, I, I, he's just kind of weak and not, not incredibly smart. A little bit lazy, and uh, he just—it's exciting for him. Now, next up, we meet the idiot that Rigby employed to go do the the transaction with the Devil's Hammers guys out in Needles, California, and he is a lot dumber than he let on to Rigby earlier. Yeah, yeah, he is actually, yeah, he is really, really stupid and naive and for a guy who comes on as a, a kind of a badass he's he's really a lot more naive than you know than he should be he's you know he comes on as this sort of streetwise guy and but he gives the guy from the motorcycle gang the briefcase full of cocaine and says okay you you make sure you come back with that money now <laughs> yeah he's not he's he's not a smart man and so he gets back to meet with Rigby he doesn't have the cash and instead of Rigby just threatening to murder him on the spot, he lets it slide a bit, and that makes Billy think that he should get the $5,000 he was promised no matter what. Right. Well, he says, well, the $5,000 was going to come out of the, the money you brought me. And he says, I didn't hear anything about that. I, you promised me $5,000 if I went and did this thing. Rigby, at that point, loses his cool, breaks Billy's jaw. And it's the first time he really loses his cool in the book. He loses it a couple of more times, but this is the first thing that really makes him snap. So Rigby, I mean, when he loses his cool, he's scary enough, but when he starts thinking, sometimes it gets even scarier. Yeah, and he starts getting these threatening messages from Billy, text messages, and he's trying to find him and just going to put another scare into him. And it doesn't quite work that way. Now, one of the reasons Billy needed this five grand, he wanted to move in with his girlfriend, Magda. Or buy a car. <laughs> but she's a, about as close to a good and not terrible person as this story seems to have. Yeah, well, I guess. <laughs> I didn't realize it was quite that. Yeah, but I think you're right. Yeah. But even she does stupid things. She encourages him to keep pressing the matter with Rigby about the money. Yeah, because she's no fool. Up next, we meet this limp rag named Jerry, who lives up in St. Louis, but he has the Hollywood connection. Yeah, he's the nephew of the old TV producer. He is a guy who was born into a rich family, and things have gone downhill steadily pretty much his whole life. And he's at a point now where he is just flat out of money. He is expecting his Uncle Glenn, the TV producer, to leave him some money as his sole heir. So he heads out to California on the news that Glenn has taken sick. And Jerry is another character who's trying to save face. And he goes to the local private school's yeah. fundraising auction. And he, he's there trying to put on the airs that, you know, he still belongs in this crowd. Right. He's putting on a, a brave face and not doing a very good job of it. He's somebody who... Uh, you know, he's, he's another coaster. He's somebody who's just coasting through life, and he is really counting on his uncle being a little more sentimental about him than he probably really is. What are uh, Mr. Haskell's health problems? Why is Glenn getting close to the end there? Oh, he's 
just an elderly smoker and drinker, and uh, he's, he's in his 90s, and he's got a kidney problem that causes him to appear to be quite near death, when in fact he's actually not. They call in a kidney specialist, and he's suddenly he's back to his old self, which poses a problem for Rigby, who, you know, needs to replace that money, bef- you know, uh, before he's found out. And it poses a problem for the nephew, because the nephew was counting on getting that, that dough. And also, there's the, the matter of the, uh, the painting, because uh, Glenn Haskell is an art collector, and he collects mostly bad art. It's mostly kind of unappealing stuff and not worth very much money. But there's one painting he has that was given to his wife by the widow of the painter. He thinks it's a fairly valuable painting. What he doesn't realize is that in the time since he last looked into it, it has become a very valuable painting because it's a Russian expat. And a lot of Russian expat painters' work became very valuable after the fall of the Soviet Union because all of a sudden you had these rich Russians who wanted to buy Russian art and wanted to repatriate you know, works to the motherland. Rigby becomes aware that this painting is worth a great deal more than they had thought, and he comes up with the idea of forging a copy of it and giving that copy to the school that Glenn attended, to which he has promised the painting, and selling the real one. Small world, somebody his wife knows, knows a very good painter who would be perfect for the job. Right, who in fact studied with the Russian painter of the work in question, and who still bears a grudge against him from 60 years earlier, and uh, is very happy to have an excuse to get even posthumously by making a better fake than the original. Nina is Haskell's assistant, and she studied art history in college. And of all the players, I think she might be just the straight-up smartest person that's involved in all of this. Yeah, definitely. She's the brains of the outfit. She is actually the one who comes up with the idea of the forgery, because she is the one who recognizes that this is a much more valuable painting than anybody recognizes. And while Rigby gets in more trouble when he delegates responsibilities to other people, seems uh, Nina yes. is a better manager than he is on these things. She definitely is. She's the kind of person who you encounter who who really should be running everything, but She's just not very ambitious. With Jerry's section in St. Louis, have you ever written anything set in St. Louis before? A short story, only a short story, for St. Louis Noir, which came out from Akashic Books a few years ago. And no, I never really had. It's easier to write about a place. To me, it's easier to write about a place I've left. Most of this book is set in Ventura, California, where I used to live. I've written about Wichita, my hometown, and I've written about Paris, where I used to live. I had the idea that this guy was from St. Louis, but I didn't know I was actually going to write about St. Louis, have him there. I thought he was just going to come. But my agent said, you know, why don't you show us a little bit of his home life and why he's so desperate? And we have a disastrous trolley here. We built a trolley at the cost of I don't know how many millions of dollars, and it shut down in less than a year. So I got to make fun of the trolley, which uh, <laughs> I think a lot of St. Louisans appreciated. So why is it, do you think, you 
are more able to write about places that you've left instead of the, the place that you're in. I don't worry about getting it right. I remember once writing about Wichita, and I put a famous hotel, well, famous if you're from Wichita, on the wrong side of the river. And uh, I realized I had put it on the wrong side of the river, and I thought, well, I'm going to leave it because I want this character to have this thought while he's crossing this bridge going downtown. And I thought people in Wichita would object to it, but nobody else would care. And you know what? Nobody from Wichita ever noticed it. But it's just kind of easier. I don't have to think about, well, how would I really get there? How would I really do this? What would I, you know, is that still there? It allows me to fictionalize it with a little clearer conscience. Well, what kind of place is Ventura in the Southern California scene? It's the next county up from Los Angeles County. It's on the coast. But other than that, when you think of Ventura, what is it like? Well, it's much more rural. It's got a very interesting, you know, income inequality situation. You've got very, very rich people and very, very poor people. I guess everywhere has that. But in Ventura, it's very noticeable. There are people with an awful lot of money and there are people with nothing. And part of this book is, of course, those two demographics clashing. But it's a very nice place to live, or at least it used to be. It has become more of a bedroom community for Los Angeles than it, than it was when I lived there. People used to think it was ridiculous, you know, to drive that, that distance to go to work in L.A. But now that's what's happened in the last 20, 25 years. So it's been six years since Hop Alley, your previous novel, came out. Was there something especially difficult yeah. about Left Turn that made it take this long, or did other bits of life interfere? Well, I was uh, halfway through it, and it was going to be a much longer book than it is now. and. It wasn't going well, and I didn't know what the problem was with it. And around that time, I got an offer to do a cookbook with a chef. And so I took quite a long time off working on that. And it ended up not quite working out. But when the work on that ended, I realized that I had a different way to do this book. And it involved cutting a lot of it out and changing the way the characters interacted. and. A lot of it was just realizing that Rigby was the natural center of the book as kind of the prime mover of everything. He was the guy to focus on. And then it wrote itself pretty quickly after that. So your last three novels have been pretty compact pieces of work. Um, yeah. I remember Cottonwood was... That's because I'm was, lazy. It <laughs> was pretty long. Oh, I thought you had to work really hard to write a short book. <laughs> well, maybe. I don't know. I'd like to write another long one, but I don't know if there's a lot of demand for it. Are there any ideas popping around that you're working on right now? Yeah, I've got a, two that I'm actually working on at the same time, which is kind of strange. One I'm doing in serialized form for a magazine called Vautrin, V-A-U-T-R-I-N, which is published in Wichita. I thought it'd be one of your French friends. Yeah, no, it's but it's named after the character from Balzac, who the villainous character who appears in a number of his books. And it's a good magazine, and they asked me if I wanted to contribute something. So I started, they've published two so far, and uh, the third is coming out as soon as, you know, bookstores start opening up again. And so that is a story set in 1917 in Los Angeles, and that features Bill Ogden, who was the protagonist of Cottonwood and Hop Alley, only now he's old. He's, you know, in his 70s, and he's 
yeah, still still the same guy, but just older. And the other one is another book set in Wichita. It's another crime novel set in Wichita. And I don't know which one is going to get finished first. Is Ogden working in Hollywood on the, the early westerns? Uh, sort of, kind of. Uh, he's, he is Hollywood adjacent. He's working as a photographer and he meets, he meets people who are working in Hollywood, but he doesn't take it very seriously. And, um, that's all I know so far. Now I know at a certain point he's, you know, in the 1930s, he's going to have a movie made out of his, his remembrances of Cottonwood, Kansas, and it'll have the bloody benders in it, but it'll all be wrong. It'll all be, (laughs) you know. You know, Joan, Joan Crawford playing Kate Bender, and, you know, it'll be nonsense. Did you go back and read, like, Dickens or old Collier's magazine to see how the, the installment process works? You know, I I didn't really. Uh, I, I was going to just do it as a short story, and then it sort of ended on a, not a cliffhanger exactly, but a a character having all of her teeth pulled out and replaced with dentures. And um, the editor said, well, what's going to happen to the woman with the dentures? And I said, oh, I guess I'll, I'll write some more. So <laughs> there you go. It sounds like you're getting into body horror there. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. I did go into, uh, I, there's a great archive of the Los Angeles Herald and uh, so I went back to 1917, and I've been looking at a lot of things. And one thing I found out is that there were a lot of ads for dentures, and that you know you could get a you could get a set for about ten bucks. That might be a month's pay for some folks back then. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean that was not that was not super cheap by any means, but but yeah, those those kinds of things uh, I, I find if I'm writing historical fiction, I find newspapers are really really useful because. You know, you find out what people were preoccupied with. And a lot of times the classified ads are just golden for that kind of thing. What was the weirdest thing that you came across in all the the old papers? Yeah, I did. I used this for uh, for the the, the Vautrin story. A lunatic chasing a woman off of a bus and being... uh, uh, Well, I think he was hopped up. And he chased a woman off of a bus and... uh, you know, as he was taken in by passersby, several of whom were off-duty cops, and uh, I don't know. I, I'm not doing the story justice. It was it was much more interesting uh, on the page. Well, Scott, I want to thank you so much for spending some of your valuable quarantine time talking with me today. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. It uh, took a little bit of the boredom out of the the afternoon. Generally, how have you been able to keep yourself occupied during the quarantine times? Processing photographs. I've been reading a little bit, not watching as much uh, TV as I thought I would, or movies. Yeah, just, I I find that I'm fairly well suited to just sitting here. Kind of surprised me. I've always said that I'm a half a hermit, and uh, it's kind of proven true through all this. But I, I have found myself not having the patience often to sit through a full movie. Yeah, I I sat through half of It's a Gift, which is one of my favorite movies, and I'll probably watch the second half at some point. <laughs> we watched a Easter Parade when it came on TCM a few weeks ago. Oh, yeah. 
Then I watched um, Conan the Barbarian last night. Oh, yeah. Because I'd only seen the network television edited version. So I wanted to, to actually see what the, the original was like. Yeah, I don't really remember it, except that uh, my take on it at the time was James Earl Jones reprises his role as Darth Vader. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that Oliver Stone co-wrote the script. Oh, I, I, if I ever knew that, I'd forgotten it. If I were him, I wouldn't put it on my resume. No, no. I Well, there's a lot of Oliver Stone's work that I wouldn't put on mine. <laughs> but that's just me. All righty. Thanks again, and take care, Scott. Sorry thanks about again. my barking. Oh, no worries at all. <laughs> See you later. Bye-bye. Scott Phillips is the author of the novel That Left Turn at Albuquerque, which is published by Soho Crime. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wiplfm at gmail.com or write to us at booktalk, care of WIPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work, but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.